Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by my friends over at ShopC60.com. If you haven't heard of Carbon 60 or otherwise called C60 before, it is a powerful Nobel Prize winning antioxidant that helps to optimize mitochondrial function, fights inflammation, and neutralizes toxic free radicals. I'm a huge fan of using C60 in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle to support your immune system, help your body detox, and increase energy and mental clarity. If you are over the age of 40 and you'd like to kick fatigue and brain fog to the curb this year, visit shopc60.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS for 15% off your first order and start taking back control over your health today. The products I use, I use their C60 in organic MCT coconut oil. They have it in various different flavors. They also have sugar-free gummies that are made with allulose and monk fruit. They also have carbon 60 and organic avocado and extra virgin olive oil. When it's combined with these fats, it absorbs more effectively. And carbon 60 is great as a natural energizing tool because it really helps your mitochondria optimize your energy production. Now, if you take it late at night, for some individuals, it may seem a little bit stimulating. So that's why we recommend taking it earlier in the day. And it will give you that great energy, that great, great mental clarity that you want all day long. It will help reduce the effects of oxidative stress and aging and really help you thrive. So again, guys, go to shopc60.com. Use the coupon code JOCKERS to save 15% off your first order and start taking back control of your health today. Welcome back to the podcast. I've got a repeat guest, my friend Jason Prawl, who is the creator of the Human Longevity Project. He is the best-selling author of the book, Beyond Longevity, A Proven Plan for Healing Faster, Feeling Better, and Thriving at Any Age. And we are going to talk about sleep, light, and circadian rhythm and how that plays a role in mitochondrial health aging and longevity. So this is a really power-packed episode. You guys are in for a treat. We're going to talk about different theories of aging. We're going to talk about some of the main uh, hierarchy of symptoms and how to really understand symptoms you might be experiencing. And we're going to dive deep into sleep, light, and circadian rhythm and how critical that is. So I know you guys are going to get a lot out of this. And be certain to, to check out Jason's website. You can go to Beyond Longevity Book dot com to check out his book beyond longevity and also his film where he traveled all around the world and studied some of the longest lived people people who are aging really really successfully you can check that out at humanlongevityfilm.com so again you're in for a treat here if you've not left us a five star review now is the time to do that just go to apple itunes or wherever you listen to the podcast scroll to the bottom or wherever it says write a review go ahead and leave us a five-star review. When you do that, it helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a part of our community and let's go into the show. 
Well, Jason, always great to connect. And I know we've talked in the past and I had mentioned how much I really enjoyed your book. I mean, uh, I talked about it in the intro, but I love this book, Beyond Longevity. Phenomenal book. And anybody that's interested in aging and longevity, this is the go-to books, really the best book that I've read on that topic. And so just uh, really appreciate your, your wealth of knowledge and really appreciate your overall perspective on this. And I'm excited to really, really dive into some of these topics that you discuss in the book and really starting with this idea of what is longevity, right? Because that's kind of something that most people think they know, right? But it's a little deeper than what most people really understand. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Um, the the kind words, really, uh, from all the all the work that you do, it means a lot. So, so thank you for that. And yeah, you know, this it's it's interesting. We're in a, such an interesting time when it comes to longevity, right? Because we have these this new medicine that's coming online, right, with stem cells and biologics, and then we have which is essentially dipping back into our own innate intelligence, right? So that's an interesting thing to explore. Um, and then we have the other side of the coin, which is like all this technology, right? Which is is interesting and also potentially dangerous and very kind of weird in another way, right? We can go down some really dark rabbit holes in that realm, right? And we kind of are in some, some ways. So we're at a very interesting nexus. And I think how we think about aging and how we think about longevity is really, really important, right? There's historical context for aging and for, for longevity and for life itself as a cycle, right? So it, it's really important to, I think, really explore these things from a foundational principle because if we if we lose that then we're going to start veering off into these random territories that are going to get us in trouble right and so for me when i when i wrote the book right it's like longevity is an important thing right we want elders we want really experienced people to guide our 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 younger generations right there's there's a lot of benefits to having uh to increasing longevity on the planet and then but then it's like well, what is longevity what is aging right how do we think about aging right and that's a it's a very deep topic and and i interviewed you for uh, my film series the human longevity project and i remember you know we interviewed 80 90 uh health experts you were one of them and 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 i asked this question to many many of them i said you know what is aging and not a single person gave me this the same answer and these are very very intelligent people who do a lot of work in a lot of different realms in the health sciences and so that's interesting right it's interesting the fact that we don't have a definition, a biological, a definition of biological aging, right? So I actually had to sit and think about that for, for what that is, right? And, and it's really a process, right? So a lot of the times when we're thinking about aging and anti-aging and longevity, what most people are actually talking about are the, the, the effects of mm. quote unquote aging, right? The, the damage that accumulates over time as a result of aging, we still don't really know what aging is, what, what causes this process in an organism, right? Be it a, a salamander, a whale, a tiger, or a human, right? But in the, it's an innate process. So it's built into all these organisms, right? And so there's, there's interesting things when it comes to aging itself. And so without going too deep into that rabbit hole because that we can get lost in that it's important to recognize that damage is is one thing and aging is another thing and we can i think we can slow the rate of aging in fact i'm quite confident we can do that i'm not so confident that we can stop aging altogether and i'm not and i'm i'm, I'm absolutely convinced that we can't anti-age 
right? We can't go backwards. Now, look, we use these terms colloquially, right? You probably use it, I use it, right? And it's okay, but I think what I want to affect here is that the, the term anti-aging is really damage reversal, right? The ability to sort of turn back the clock from a, from a damage perspective on a cellular level or an organ level. So in a sense, it's like anti-aging, but really it's just cleaning up some damage and we're utilizing the repair mechanisms that are built within us. But that's the important distinction is, yes, we can turn on repair. Yes, we can clean up damage. And no, we can't undo whatever aging is and whatever is actually guiding that process. Again, we don't have it. We don't know. Um, whatever is doing that, I'm confident that we sh sure as heck can't figure out how to undo that yet. Like that would be like Benjamin yeah. Button style, like going backwards and we start getting younger. And, you know, in 10 years, I'm now 20 again. Like that is just not going to happen. Right. So uh, just, just want to like lay that framework down because I think it's really important as we have these discussions about longevity, what it is we're really talking about. And I think it is slowing the rate at which one ages and or cleaning up damage that has already accumulated. And we can do that to an extent because we have the, the mechanisms built within our biology. We have that magic within us. That's what's cool. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, we know that damage is going to happen. It happens to all yeah. of us. In fact, actually, it's to some degree, it's necessary. You know, it's a hormetic stressor right. that creates adaptation and creates a level of resilience within our body. So we know the damage is going to occur. We can't get around that. So then, you know, the other uh, factor is how well we respond and recover. So I've heard the term you know, healthy aging is really successful adaptations to the stressors that we're under and how successfully and it, we're adapting. Absolutely. And it's a balance, right? Like if, if we yeah. lose this ability to destroy cells to, in, in other words, mm. create death on a micro level, yeah. then we have cancer, right? So, so we actually want cells to die. We need cells to die. We need mitochondrion to die, right? And that's a really critical aspect. In fact, there's a lot of longevity researchers that are in the mitochondrial sciences that are in um, the cancer sciences that are looking at these sort of rates of how much apoptosis do we want? How much autophagy do we want, right? If we have too much of something, it's bad. If we have too much of another thing, it's also bad, right? So mm. there's a there's a dynamic balance that is always occurring inside the body. And this becomes the art form, if you will, of how do we do this um, throughout our lives, knowing that this is going to happen. We want it to happen. We want to actually encourage it to happen. And a lot of the things that we look at in the health world, right? When it comes to, again, exercise, Exercise, sunlight, fasting, certain foods, these are all hormetic stressors, right? In other words, they are damage causing. They are they are innately creating a pressure on the system, mm. right? Some sort of selective pressure, adaptive pressure that the that, that our organism has the amazing ability to both sense and then and then adapt and modify in order to meet that stressor right so that's what's really really amazing about our human organism and yet if we push it too hard then it then it gets out of this hormetic zone and it gets into just straight damage yeah. right and yet again just like if i were well actually it was at the gym uh, a few months ago and and sliced my finger up and had to go mm. get stitches and all that right and I, and it was like it looked like i went through a meat grinder i mean the nail was hanging off and i'm like oh my mm. god and yet the doc comes in there, throws in like four stitches through the nail bed and all this, stuff. but my finger miraculously heals, right? And right now there's a lot of scar tissue in there. So there's, there's some reorganization and, and of, of, the, of the tissue itself, but over time, it's going to go back to a normal finger, like 
pretty much all the way, right? Like that's remarkable. So we have this intelligence within us. So no matter how much damage we cause, we can almost recover from anything. Like that's what's really remarkable. And the younger that we are, because there's something important about youth itself, right? The amount of stem cells we have, the the all the growth factors, all the the magic that is within a, within a young life form, there's vitality in there um, that does wane over time, right? That is part of the aging process. But when we sort of make mistakes early in life, we can still come back from them, right? So this is it's really remarkable. And that's what's worth acknowledging here is that there's, it's really important to remember that there's an innate intelligence. There's a built-in magic to us, right? And to honor that, to respect it, and not sort of try to play God in every turn because it, it, it gets us into trouble, right? To really trust the inbuilt humanity is, is really, really important in this process. Yeah, it's so good. And, you know, there's a, there's a quote by BJ Palmer, who is one of the developers of chiropractic. And he said, most people put more faith in a spoonful of medicine than they do the power that took them from two cells and form them into trillions of living, breathing, pooping cells. Yes, totally. And 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 that was one of the things that I thought about when I was think, writing my book about, you know, what is aging and 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 when does aging start, right? Like, it's a very interesting concept because I, I've got a young one. I know you've had, you have a number of kids. Mm -hmm. Like when you watch them grow up, you, you think of them as getting older, but we don't necessarily think about them as aging, like a, a decline, right? Aging tends to be this sort of, uh, it tends to be coincident with this idea of decline once we get to a certain point, right? Maybe yeah. it's 30, maybe it's 40, whatever, whenever that is. But when but when, when do we make that shift in our mind of what aging is? Aging for a three-year-old is a really important developmental complexifying process, right? The, the, the brain and nervous system is still being built, right? It's not even online yeah. yet, right? It's still myelinating. There's still lots happening to complexify the organism, as you mentioned, going from, you know, a zygote to two cells to four. I mean, that, and then, and then somehow these cells that are uniform start to differentiate and turn into a liver cell and a kidney cell and a, and a skin cell. And it's like, this is a really wild process. And it happens pretty reliably to the point where we can predict all of these things, right? So, so that's, what's interesting is that, that aging, when does that happen? Does it, is it, is a two-year-old aging? I mean, I, I think so. But from what I can tell and what I kind of allude to in, in my book is that, there, that that aging is a part of the process of sexual development. In other words, mm. we can't separate the two, yeah. right? So it's kind of this thing. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I won't diverge too much. But 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 again, you, you, this is a really important point too, right? Like there's there's so much magic in this process of developing, developing into a human and aging is is inextricably linked to that process. So to some degree, it's like this embrace of the aging process while also understanding that if we do things really, really well, if we align with these sort of natural truths, then we can extend this process of life and do so in a healthy way. Yeah, for sure. So aging is a constant. The question is, are you aging successfully or are you aging unsuccessfully? And I just That's look right. at my family and I've got family members, you know, they're in their seventies, no medications, able to do everything they want to do, don't need extra help, still working, have a lot of life and vigor. And then I've got family members in their 50s on five, six medications, have you know four different comorbidities and really struggling on a daily basis. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a 15 year gap between two individuals I'm thinking of, and yet, you know, significant differences in quality of life. And so it's it's clear I could see, okay, this person is has been aging successfully. So somebody might say, well, yeah, she's, you know, 71 years old, 
right? But she has the energy and vigor of somebody probably in their 40s. And then, you know, another individual in their 50s, late 50s, but has the energy and vigor of somebody, you know, towards the end stage of their life, late 70s, 80s. That's right. And 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 when when I went around the world and and interviewed and spoke with and hung out with people in their 80s, 90s and beyond 100, this is the thing I noticed is that you know, I, again, I remember Giulio was 105 in in Sardinia, Italy and he was old, straight up. He was like yay big and he was old and he couldn't hear as well as he used to you know he's got the the big ears right because our ears continue to grow <laughs> right his eyesight wasn't as keen as it used to be but he was still playing chess with his like 80 year old son or whatever it was and he was still able to ride a bike right now he wasn't able to ride it with the vigor of a 22 year old and he wasn't able to so in other words the decline is there mm -hmm. and yet he still maintains some amount of vitality and so i think this is the again when I think about how I'm going to be aging, you know, God willing that that I can continue to to live without sort of, uh, I guess, being taken away too early. Um, it's interesting, right? Like, what does that look like? You know, because the, the, I'm I'm continuing to develop a deep acceptance that my limitations will take hold eventually, right? Like, and there's a really important philosophical underpinning to that, which is that it's sort of morbid in a sense. It's like, you'll never be younger than you are now. You can be healthier. We can reverse this, but like, this is, this is important to recognize mm -hmm. where you're at now to honor this, to, to be thankful for where you're at, because we're going one direction, right? We can clean some things up. We can get rid of some pains. We can lose some weight. We can get better blood sugar regulation. We can do all kinds of cool stuff along the way. But the, the, the trend is this way, right? And so um, it's it's important to recognize that that, it, that what we have is so valuable, right? Because again, I saw very successfully healthy agers, right? And and yet they still were limited in what they can do as they get into their. And everybody thinks it's so wonderful to live to 120 or 140, and we have these ideas of what that means. And from what I can tell, it doesn't look like 50. It doesn't look like 42. Yeah. Right. It looks like 120 or 105 <laughs> or 110. Right. And then, so there's limitation to that. So there's there's an important aspect of here to regain as much uh, limitation that may have already set in and also to sort of stave off any new limitations that are coming. But inevitably they will come. Right. So so it's it's like acceptance and gratitude and also doing what I can to extend. Yeah, that's good. And if uh, anybody's interested in and in actually listening to Jason's interviews with a lot of these people that have aged successfully in these blue zone areas, you can just go to humanlongevityfilm.com and check that out. He's got it. You can sign up and, and listen to those. And, you know, in your book, you talk about the hierarchy of symptoms. I think this is a really important concept for people to understand as well. Yeah, I, I think this is um, where if somebody's dealing with symptoms, uh, disease, whatever whatever the case they might be dealing with, we tend to start off with kind of what I call level one, right? Which are the labels, right? And this is when you go into a doctor and say, oh, you have hypertension, right? Or you have diabetes or you have uh, kidney disease or eczema, right? And so they're giving you a label. And it's important, I think, at the beginning, you accept that label from many people. Some people don't, but, but that's generally where it is. And then after some of the standard treatments, or, or maybe you just are already at that point where you're rejecting that, you're already kind of beyond this idea. Well, then there's the, the level two down, right? And this is where a lot of the, let's say, more integrative functional medicine, maybe even naturopathic, we start to get into the practitioner level, or maybe you're just a researcher like, like me, where I kind of started on my own and I started learning some about some of this. Well, this is, this is where you get into like, okay, well, I don't have hypertension or diabetes. I'm actually looking at 
high hemoglobin A1C, right? Or elevated inflammatory markers or, or low thyroid hormone or whatever the case is, right? And so you can identify the next layer down of, oh, that's the problem, right? And then you can go a layer below that. This is where um, the sort of the expressions live, right? And this is like, oh, it's actually mitochondrial damage that is underlying all this, or there's gastrointestinal inflammation, or there's poor cellular communications or chronic inflammation, right? And there's, there's ways to sort of classify the dysfunction on that level. And then we can go below that, which is the behaviors. In other words, what are causing the expressions, right? So, oh, it's actually the behaviors, right? I'm, I'm eating improperly for, for uh, my situation, right? Um, or I'm, I'm not exercising enough, or I'm exercising too much, or I'm getting poor sleep, or I have social isolation, right? I, I, or I'm overworking, right? Whatever the case is, a shallow breathing, right? Most, most of us don't breathe very well. Smoking or drinking or, you know, gambling or you know, any of these type of behavioral things that might create symptoms, right? And then then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, well, why is one doing those things, right? We all know drinking too much or eating processed food and, and overeating processed food is not good for us. That's not rocket science. I don't think we're fooling anybody. Everybody understands this. Well, why are we doing it? Well, there's something driving the behavior, right? And typically what's driving the behavior are these thoughts, the feelings, and the beliefs, right? So this is kind of the, the subconscious aspect. Some of it becomes conscious, but a lot of it is living in the unconscious or subconscious. And there might be some shame or disappointment or ignorance, or um, could be a low self-worth or so insecurities, could be conditionings that happen throughout our childhood. All these things that live under uh, the surface that most of us aren't aware of. Sometimes we can become aware of them, but that's what's driving the, the behaviors. And again, why am I overeating? Why am I eating these foods that I know are not healthy? Even in the midst of eating unhealthy foods, for example, we can know that this is not good and we still do it. Like it's really mm -hmm. wild how powerful these, these energies and emotions and thoughts and beliefs are that are dictating behaviors, right? But then we can even go a, a level deeper than that. Right? And this is kind of the sixth level. And it's like, what is causing the limiting belief? What's causing that low self-worth or that, that conditioning? Well, typically it happens in these sort of these, what I call core wounds. You know, it could be a traumatic birth. You know, it just my, my son had a traumatic birth. Actually, the birth was fine. And then he had low oxygen saturations. So we had to mm. get a home birth and we had to take him into the hospital mm. <laughs> under these bright lights in this chaotic environment, which is the exact thing we were trying to avoid. Yeah. Nevertheless, that was the situation. They did an amazing job to help stabilize him and, and everything was good there. But that itself is a traumatic uh, wound, right? And so uh, that's that's could be the birth, could be developmental ruptures as we're developing in our childhood, right? Between our caregivers, there's all these ruptures that happen along the way. And if they happen consistently, um, then they can get conditioned uh, into us and, and create our worldview, right? In, in psychology, we might call this the internal working model. It's the, it's the model through which I, I view reality and my place in it, right? And, and in other words, am I lovable? I'm only lovable when I do all these good things, right? Mm. Or when I succeed or when I listen or when whatever the case is, right? Or, you know, you must eat all the food on your plate. Well, that can actually create some beliefs and conditionings around food, right? There's all kinds of these things um, that, that get created at that core wound level, right? Um, but this significant sort of emotional trauma, conditioning, physical trauma, even inherited traumas, right? I actually work with a lot of uh, people that have Jewish uh, descent and lineage. There's some stuff that can happen in that line that's mm. not even theirs, right? It comes from grandpa, right? Or grandmother. Yeah. And so there's inherited traumas. And the research is very clear on this, by the way, that even to the point where they're they're tracing methylation uh and and 
if something's upregulated or downregulated on the methylation aspect. So the, 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 it's really wild how, how far science has actually gotten onto that front. Um, or it could even be, as a core wound, a disharmonious environment. Um, so growing up in an environment that is not well suited um, for life, right? And so, um, again, it could be an emotional situation. It could be just growing up in a, a very poor rural area and all you have access to is all these sort of uh, poor habits around you, right? And poor lifestyle behavior. So there's a lot of things that can happen. But again, if those are core wounds are, are at the surface that dictate the thoughts and feelings and beliefs that dictate the behaviors, right? The behaviors expect the expression the the at the cellular level or the, the, the internal level. And then those are reflected in the markers that we might test for, right? They're showing up in markers and the markers give us the labels, right? And so we tend to live in those sort of first couple levels, but it really, it, it can be helpful to address some of the top one level, level one symptoms. In other words, drugs may be beneficial for some people to help stabilize them. And I'm not a huge fan of big pharma in any way. Um, and I would say if in an ideal world, those drugs don't even exist, but there's been a lot of medications that can be very life-saving for a handful of people just to get them stable. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so that can be helpful. And then again, looking at the markers, how do we manipulate markers? That can be helpful too. But then oftentimes that's not enough. We got to go to the expression, look at what's happening at the mitochondria level, might be an organic acids test, might be some gut tests. Great. That also may not be enough. We may have to go deeper and say, well, what are the behaviors that you're doing? And this is where I, I worked with a lot of people that had autoimmune conditions and cancers and you name the symptoms and the, and the disease. I had to look at their behaviors. What's your circadian rhythm like? Are you getting enough sleep? Do you even know what that looks like, right? What's your, your, your feeding schedule, right? How often are you eating? How much are you eating? Are you chewing your food, right? Um, what does your social environment look like? How much are you working, right? All the behavioral aspects of somebody's life is worth analyzing because that's gonna dictate all those downstream things. And again, even if we change the behaviors, we, we also must look at oftentimes what's driving the behavior. Why is the person acting this way? Um, is it just out of ignorance or is there something deeper that is driving the behavior, right? So again, we work our way all the way down. And when we get to that core wound level, oftentimes that can be where we finally get resolution mm -hmm. to the autoimmune condition or the low thyroid symptoms or whatever the case is, it can go that deep. So we can work at all these yeah. levels and that the key is try not to get stuck at one of those first couple levels, mm. keep digging deeper because that's where you may find the ultimate solution that you're looking for. Yeah, that's so powerful. And it's really important for people to understand that and going touching back on what you had, had mentioned. Uh, so you, so you're working with people that had uh, relatives that were Holocaust survivors. Yeah. So yeah. they were going, so they're, so they had never experienced that, but they had grandparents that experienced that incredible, yep. you know, obviously physical, mental, emotional, spiritual trauma. Yep. And so now that, so that, and that is a driving factor in sometimes in some of their behaviors. And their beliefs, right? So this yeah, is what's crazy. That's why it's so hard for, for the, these clients that I work with. And again, I, I point that one out because it's an obvious one and it's one mm. that the research has looked at, but this can be anything. It doesn't matter. I mean, almost living. all of us. I mean, if you really I go would, back a few, you know, it's like, like uh, in my, my family, both my wife and I have a family member that was sexually abused. Yep. Right. Repeatedly. And so, um, so that trauma has, has, you know, it, it happens to be both of our mothers. Right. Yep. And so that, that trauma 
uh, yeah, obviously has impacted us in some it's degree. Inevitably, right? And I had a grandfather who uh, who was in the Korean War, right? So what are the trauma of somebody who was in the war, yeah. maybe doing atrocious things to others, but that right. inevitably has a trauma on the, the perpetrating mm. individual too, right? So there's all kinds of these things. We're wow. also born into cultural environments. So we the, the land that we live on mm. essentially and the people that are around us, whatever's happening in that environment or has happened in the recent past is going to impact us, right? So there's all kinds of these things, right? If you're, if you're an indigenous Native American, right? And you're growing up on a reservation and it's a, there's a lot of trauma yeah. as a native american in this in this country right so there, this is all throughout our society women and men and you know different in it, it races and it goes through everything right but but here's what's really important to recognize is that the, oftentimes somebody's suffering from something could be anxiety right let's say somebody has high anxiety mm -hmm. and they can't get their brain to switch off which is affecting their sleep so they might come to see me and they're getting horrible sleep, they have high anxiety. Those two things itself are going to then manifest in many other symptoms. So in other words, the mm. poor, the chronic poor sleep and the high anxiety, high mental processes is going to create downstream effects in and of themselves. But then again, what's creating the sleep and the anxiety issues? Well, it could be something that, that grandma experienced in the Holocaust, right? And because that was such a trauma, it got passed through the lineage that, that the grandson, the granddaughter has no idea because they didn't experience it directly. So they don't know that that's the thing that's causing them. So there's, there's different techniques I use to get into and reveal that. But this is what's so challenging is because it's not obvious. And it's, yeah. even if you know that about your lineage, you don't know that that's what's causing the IBS or mm. whatever the case is, right? So it's, it's really difficult to make these links. But I want to point to a study that was done using uh, a mouse model to, to sort of uh, show this, this link. And I think it helps tell the story of why this happens, right? So there was a, a mouse that was, um, that was given the scent of cherry blossom, and then they electrocuted the mouse, right? So every time there was association with cherry blossom scent and electrocution. So in other words, that mouse got mm. very, very hyperactive, hyper vigilant around the cherry blossom scent because it means electrocution. Yeah not good. Well, then they bred that mouse with another mouse who'd never been electrocuted and they had a pup. So that first generation pup, that first generation pup had also never been electrocuted. And they gave the cherry blossom scent to that first pup nervous system spike. In other words, the hypervigilance is, is now in the, the child, hmm. right? And then they took that, that first child and bred it with another mouse that has never been electrocuted. Now we have a second generation. In other words, two mouse, two generations removed from the original one parent mouse they got electrocuted, same thing. They noticed the same thing. When they introduced cherry blossom scent, the nervous system spiked hypervigilance. So what's really cool about this is nature has an amazing ability to pass down really yeah. important information about the environment. Yeah. This is a brilliant sort of, you can call it evolutionary, I guess, but it's really just a, 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 a messaging signal to say, hey, there's something in the environment that is very dangerous mm. and, and somehow it gets passed on. Now I mentioned methylation. We, we, we see altered methylation uh, patterns. We don't really know how it gets. If you talk to Rupert Sheldrake, he'll tell you it's it's a morphogenetic field, right? It's a field that operates outside the body. So there's mm. there's a lot of potentials here. It could be through mitochondria, could be the genes, could be through sort of water mechanisms. There's all kinds of theories and ideas, microtubules. There's all kinds of biophysics that, that we can get into. But the point is, is this has been documented and it just makes sense, right? It just wow. purely makes sense. So if we're dealing with something, it's important. This is why it's so important to go get to that level six 
uh, area if you can, mm -hmm. generally with a therapist or somebody who can help you get there. Um, because some of this stuff is so hidden, it's so out of our own view, and it's out of our own experience that it doesn't really make sense to us. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's so powerful. The body's always, you know, in a sense, we want to, we want to prepare our offspring for any sort of potential dangers. So we it's can an adaptation. To reproduce and yeah. continue to pass on our, 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 our genetics. And yeah. so, yeah. So if, if there's anything that's potentially dangerous, that's, you know, if there's any trigger that's associated with whatever that danger is, that is what we're trying to pass on. And this is why like babies have reflexes, right? These are all survival mechanisms. And so, yeah, it's all built into our, our nervous system. So very, very fascinating. Now I wanted to pivot this because we could talk all day about the philosophy and all of these topics. And it's so interesting. I would re definitely recommend you guys, if you're, if you're listening at this point, you're interested, you want to get his book beyond longevity, uh, book. I think that's what it is beyond yep. longevity book. Yep.com and, and, and read more about this, but let's talk about the impact of sleep, light and circadian rhythm on our overall health and, and longevity. Yeah, I mean, it, it, one of the views or lenses I'd like to look at human health through is sort of this like, let's just say evolutionary lens, even though I don't, it's not, it's not a philosophy I agree with wholeheartedly, but, but what we can say is that we look at organisms through, uh, throughout nature there are certain things that are preserved through all organisms, right? And all life on earth. And, and the fundamental thing that we all have in common with every organism is light, right? So we all live on this planet, which operates on a day and night cycle. So we've all had to adapt, whether we're nocturnal or diurnal, right? And so based on this changing environmental pattern between uh, light and dark on a daily basis, as well as seasonal, our biology is of every organism is going to be adapted to that, right? So it is something that is well-preserved um, throughout biology itself. And so just be because of that lens, we can say, this is pretty important. In other words, we can't escape this one, right? There's no organism on, on the planet in history that we know of that has escaped this idea of circadian rhythm, right? That there's a, there's a cycle that we must adhere to. And so really, really important. Sleep is also one of those things that if you've ever tried to go two or three days without sleep, good luck, right? Like yeah. everything starts to shut down, right? Like it's really, really important, right? So it's like breath, probably the most important thing because we can't go too long without that, right? And then look, we can go a couple of days without water and water is really important, but we can mm -hmm. go a couple of days without water. Food, we can go a long time without food, right? So, so these are kind of the hierarchy of like how I try to position like what's important, right? Like. Mm. So sleep is one of these critical things. And um, the tricky thing about sleep is that we don't really know. We know a lot about it and there's a lot we don't know still. So we don't know why we need to sleep per se, right? There's deep spiritual context there. But we know that we need to sleep um, every day. It's not something that you can bank. In other words, you can't get... 15 hours of sleep and think, oh, that's just, just as good as two nights. No, it has to be done regularly mm. and it must be uh, on a clock. In other words, you, you, you must have this sort of uh, everyday, same time, rhythmic pattern of sleeping. And when you don't, everything starts to go dysfunctional, right? In fact, I have my, my mother-in-law here from South Africa and she just got here two days ago and she's going through the process of what mm -hmm. we all call jet lag. Well, all this is, is a disruption in circadian rhythm, right? The internal clock uh, clocks. Let me, let me say that there's many yeah. clocks within us. Those within our bio of her biology are came from a different time zone and instantly got tra transported in a matter of 24 hours 
to a, a time zone that is, I think, 15 hours or 14 hours different, something like that, right? So, so now her biology has to respond. It's in a new environment, right? So, and it will, but it takes time to do that, right? So this idea of entrainment, right? To get entrained to this cycle that she's now on, it's going to take a few days. And in the meantime, her immune system is weaker, right? Uh, her, her brain's not going to work as well. Her detox function is, is diminished, right? Um, her heart and heart rate variability is impacted, right? The uh, metabolism, her ability to burn fat and to be fuel efficient is, is, is compromised. Higher inflammatory markers, everything is, is off because everything is guided by these time cycles, right? So we, the master control clock is essentially in the brain, right? Um, we, we have the hypothalamus and the pituitary and the pineal gland. Those are kind of the three key organs in the brain that are governing governing the, the, the sort of the master clock throughout our body. But what's interesting is that we have these, these little micro clocks within each cell, right? In fact, they call these clock genes. And these clock genes are period and bemol and clock, and there's all these sort of names for them, but they are all part of the regulatory mechanisms of each cell. And this, if you go to uh, like a Chinese medicine uh, time clock, uh, you can actually see uh, which part of the day the liver is going to be uh, more active, mm -hmm. which part of the day, right? Yeah. They, have, they have all that mapped out in their sort of Chinese medicine way. And then we can go to the Ayurvedic way and they have their map of, of the daily cycle of, of human function. And they, they use Vata, Pitta, Kapha and, and all that, but, but they've mapped that out in their systems. And now Western science has done the same thing. We started to map out, okay, this is when growth hormone spikes and here's where aldosterone spikes. And here's of course where melatonin spikes and, and cortisol and all these things. So we can map all these rhythms throughout the body, but these rhythms are only, uh, they don't operate on the clock right? Like on the wall, right? Or on your, on your iPhone, they operate based off of the clock in the sky, right? The sun. Mm -hmm. And so based on where the sun is at and, and how does it do that? Right. How does, how does, how does your body regulate? Well, the light comes through the eyes, through the suprachiasmatic nucleus and starts talking to the pineal and the, and the hypothalamus and the pituitary and the pituitary is where a lot of the hormonal regulation is governed. Right. And so, so the, the, and also on the skin, I should say, so those light frequencies, when it's high in the sky, we're getting full light spectrum as it gets deeper in on the horizon. Some of those spectrums of light are getting refracted back into space. So now, just like when you, when the sun's low, you can look directly at the sun, right? Like it's red and you can stare at it and it doesn't hurt your eyes. That's because those shorter wavelengths are bounced back into space and you, the, the red light does not impact you uh, as much, right? But once it starts getting in the sky, you can't, you, you can't look at the sun. That's how your body's able to reg, reg, recognize what time of day it is based off of the light spectrum and the frequencies. So it's really wild that we're, we're, we're geared toward this, right? And even if you, if you, if you're with your eyes closed, your eyelids are so thin, right? So it actually can accept the, 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 the longer wavelengths will actually penetrate uh, through the eyes and the shorter wavelengths too, even to some degree, will penetrate through the eyes and wake you up, right? So the, because the eyelids are so thin, it actually allows for that penetration of that light through and to wake you up as well as the heat, right? So we have these things like the light frequencies, the temperature, the food, when you, when you eat, and exercise movement. So those are the main regulators of your circadian rhythm. They are the things that entrain your circadian rhythm and your internal clocks. If we didn't have those stimuli, and they've done some so a lot of research on this, they'll put people in like a cave or underground and basically pitch black. Um, and their, their, their body starts losing rhythm. It doesn't know mm. when to wake up and when to go to sleep. And so, so not only mentally do you not know when, but your actual 
biology loses track of the time. And I think it operates on a 23 and a half hour cycle. And so it'll start to wander. Your biology will start to wander uh, internally on, on when to you know, regulate thyroid hormone and all this stuff. So it's, it's really interesting. So we need that light stimuli, particularly, as well as food, as well as movement and temperature to, to a lesser degree. We need those stimuli to say, it's morning. Okay, it's, it's 7 a.m., Turn on all these things, right? And and by by 7 a.m., I mean the sun has risen to a certain point in the sky, and so therefore the body knows now it's time to kick on all this stuff, right? And, and vice versa. So this is the rhythmic uh, function of the body. And when we lose it, all cause mortality increases. Every single disease state increases. Anybody who walked in my door, no matter what they had, whether they had fungal overgrowth or compromised detox function, uh, losing their hair, hormonal imbalances, cancer, autoimmune conditions, doesn't matter, mast cell activation syndrome, any of these conditions that people have, that's the first thing I would check is what is their circadian rhythm and what is their sleep looking like? Because if that was not well-regulated, then it's it's so hard to, to reverse or to, to recover from these conditions. That is, it's an uphill climb. If you're not sleeping, if you're, if you're awake at night, if you have a swing shift and you're, you're traveling all the time between Europe and the States and you're, you're bouncing all around, good luck trying to get, you know, a good metabolism and to lose some weight or have your hormones reflect healthy function or to, you know, detox properly. Your body's getting a mess constantly because it's not getting that regular cycle. So that's kind of the, the I guess the the lowdown on on the, the quick lowdown on this stuff. It's it's it is it's so important. In fact, now we have cancer drugs that we're using, and and Western medicine has figured out, oh, if we apply these cancer drugs at a certain time of the day, they're more effective than at other times of the day. Right. And again, Chinese mm-hmm. medicine and Ayurveda, they've known this for a long time that you administer certain things at certain times of the day and it's more effective and that's how it works. But we're now starting to figure it out in our Western ways too. So um, again, it's starting to become more of a thing, but I, I, I still don't see that people appreciate just how powerful circadian yeah. rhythm is. And I can tell you story after story of people losing weight and hormones you know, skyrocketing that were notoriously low, like testosterone. They couldn't figure out how to get it up. They were looking to go on testosterone replacement therapy. And, and, and then they just fixed their circadian rhythm and they lost the belly fat, testosterone shot up. You know, like All this stuff starts to just naturally resolve because they're, they're now in, in harmony with the way their body is meant to function. I just wanted to take a moment and interrupt this podcast to tell you about Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex. Vitamin C is a critical compound when it comes to supporting a healthy immune system. It's powerful for the immune system, but it's also really good for your skin, really good for energy. Most people don't realize this, but it actually plays a very important role in energy production. And again, for skin health as well, joint health, there's so many things that vitamin C supports our body in. And what I love about Paleo Valley's Essential C is it's a really powerful pure vitamin C supplement. And unlike most vitamin Cs, it contains zero synthetic ingredients that were created in a lab. Instead, it's made from three of the most potent whole food sources of vitamin C on the planet. So nothing weird in there, just food. Guys, check them out at paleovalley.com forward slash jockers to save 15% off. If you're looking for a great vitamin C to support your immune system, your skin, and your energy, go to paleovalley.com forward slash jockers to save 15% off the essential C complex. 
I think for most of us that are aware of our circadian rhythm, when it gets off, we feel it. It's like kryptonite. Right. I know uh, just this, this past week, I took my my twin boys to a Atlanta Braves baseball game. So we were out a little bit late and I was driving home at like 10 o'clock. Now, 10 o'clock, I'm usually like either just about to get to get in bed, right? Have with all the lights off, talking with my wife, or I'm in bed, right? Already starting the sleeping process. And so here I am driving and that's telling my brain, like, so, cause I have to be very alert and lights are on, things like that. And so I'm telling my brain it's daytime. I need to be alert. So I get home, it's like 10, 15, 10, 30, you know, put the kids to bed and, um, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go to bed. I'm, I'm, I'm winding down, talking about with my wife, lights off, ready to go to bed. I get in bed at 11 o'clock and like, I can't fall asleep for an hour <laughs> because I had already trained my brain that I was awake. So I didn't get the melatonin release that I needed. And then, so I ended up falling asleep at 12. Like you mentioned, even though I wear an eye mask at night, there's light that comes in a little bit of light that comes in my window. And I'm so responsive to that. Yep. So it comes in, it's like, I don't know, 6.50. Usually I'm up at like, I don't know, 6.30 or so. So I figured, oh, I'm not even going to set an alarm. I'm just going to sleep till whenever I wake up. Like I wake up and I'm like, oh, I don't need to get up. So I'm still laying there, but I can feel the cortisol coming up. I can feel the wakefulness coming up. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to be able to sleep any longer. Totally. And so, and then that day I was, I was much more tired than I normally am because my circadian rhythm was off. And I think, you know, there's a great quote that says, malillumination is to the body what malnutrition is to the body. Mm-hmm. And that's, totally. I think, important for people to understand is the way that we're illuminating or the, the, the light exposure that we're getting, that is an essential nutrient because nutrition as well as light sends information to our body and we can send the proper information at the right times or the improper information at improper times. And I think that's really critical. Yeah. And 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 it's interesting with food, right? Because there's so much debate about food and, and mm-hmm. discussion around food. And and that's that's great because there's there's still choices to be made that are, I think are important and, and things to learn. And and yet there's so many things that are upstream of food, right? So when I when I had my my son um he he slept in the bed with us for you know first couple of years and he was a he was a poor sleeper anyway. Um and so I was getting poor sleep my wife was getting poor sleep like many new parents do, they get poor sleep for at least yeah. that first year. And so yeah, I had I noticed, twins. So <laughs> that was brutal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can only imagine what your wife would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's rough. Right. So, so let's just imagine that scenario. Right. And so um, it, without the awareness, you know, and, and I have poor sleep for, let's say a year, I could develop certain, let's say markers or symptoms that I could go to a doctor and they could assess. Right. And if, and if the doctor or the practitioner or whoever's helping me doesn't have the awareness to, to ask me about my lifestyle and behaviors, then they're going to treat the symptoms as if the symptoms are a problem. Right. But the reality is, is what's causing my symptoms, my diagnoses, whatever the case is, my expression, right. Going back to sort of the, the symptom hierarchy, right. Um, then they're not going to get to the root. And the root is that I'm not sleeping because I have a newborn or I have, you know, a situation that's creating that. So, so, that that lifestyle behavioral let's say challenge that i'm that i'm dealing with is going to affect my thoughts feelings and beliefs right so it's going to actually yeah. create and i remember this very well 
even though I knew about food and nutrition and when to eat and mm -hmm. all this stuff, I would make poor choices because my, my actual ability to regulate, to, to, to mm -hmm. make decisions is weaker, right? My, my sort of discipline is, is reduced. And this is the case that they train Navy SEALs and, and military people like that for a reason. They, they sleep deprive them and they put them through training because that in and of itself is much more difficult. In fact, I think um, there's studies out there that look at sleep deprivation and, and compare it to uh, drunk driving. And they, they find that mm. sleep deprivation when driving is just as impair, impairment as, yeah. as, as being drunk. So there's some real issues on the at the brain level so we don't make decisions well we have more depression more anxiety um, when we don't get good sleep right now those things we tend to use food as a coping mechanism right so i noticed in my in that time i was eating i made more bad choices around food i ate more processed food more fatty sugary kind of food combinations that are processed and I know better, right? So it's not that we need to educate more on food per se. We actually need to educate perhaps more on light. It's upstream. And mm. when you get a better, when your light diet improves, right? In other words, you're getting more light, particularly early in the morning to set your circadian rhythm, to entrain the body and the brain and the hormones and everything. Look, when it comes to food, and you know, I know you know this, Dr. J, but it's like, there's so many other things that are driving your hunger, your desire mm. for food, whether it's neuropeptide Y, whether it's insulin, whether it's uh, leptin, whether, I mean, there's, there's all these hormonal signals. And then there's the gut bacteria that are also sending signals to your brain about what to eat and when to eat it and how much to eat and all that. So there's so much more guiding that. And so when we get our light diet correct and we get outside in the morning, we get that light in our eyes and it spikes our cortisol nice and high. We get a good cortisol waking response, right? Our hormones are online, right? And then we make good choices on top of that. Now this choice around food is totally different, right? And I get good sleep and I go to bed, you know, before 10 PM and I'm not eating food right before bed and making good choices there. Now everything starts to snowball in a good direction. And when I screw up the sleep thing, because I had a newborn, everything starts mm. to, to it's, it's a downward spiral, right? And it's hard to recover from that um, until you get the sleep thing correct. So again, it's sleep and light are one of these things, are the, the things that are so upstream, most decisions, right? Again, if you don't believe me, sleep deprive yourself for a week and tell me how good decisions, uh, how many good decisions you're making. Tell me how much you're actually wanting to go uh, exercise or move around. Tell me how you feel. Are you de more depressed? Are you more, more socially isolated? Or are you, you know, uh, more socially active, right? So there's all kinds of these, these things. And again, when that core thing gets off, then all these downstream things take a hold. Now those downstream things are then going to have further impact right? What choices you're making there. So it's, again, it is a downward spiral. And so we got to go back to the source. That's why for me, when I work with people, sleep and, and circadian rhythm are so fundamental because once we get that right, and that can take two or three weeks, just like my mother-in-law who's here, it's going to take her two weeks to get her circadian rhythm back in train to this time zone. And, and, and she can do it more effectively if she gets outside, right? And if she starts yeah. to sort of do some of these things, but that's the thing about sleep is that when it's, when it's destroyed and your circadian rhythm is not very good, it can take two to three weeks of consistency and uh, of doing the right thing, getting to bed at a reasonable time, you know, playing with the lights at night, making sure those are dim, perhaps a little more orange than they used to, not watching TVs and screens, right? Not eating before. This is a big one. 
You know, this is, we want to talk about food and yeah. food choices, not eating before bed is maybe mm. one of the most important things that we can, that I can say here, how that's going to impact things down the line. So what is that? How does that, how does that impact so, circadian rhythm and melatonin production? And how does that impact yeah. So, so again, our body is, is primed to operate with the solar cycle, right? So mm -hmm. in other words, when the sun's highest in the sky, my digestion is typically going to be the strongest, mm. right? And so cortisol, of course, has a time when in the morning, right? It's yeah. going to boost up in the morning and it's going to wane. Now, if all of this is a mess and my hormones are, are firing at different times and our cortisol is weak and it's inverted and melatonin's all over the place, now inherently the way my body functions is not going to be optimal. So I'm already at a disadvantage. Now, if I start layering things like eating food at, at 9 PM, particularly, you know, big, heavy, fatty, you know, mm. dense meals, my digestion's weak. It's not optimized, right? The hormones that are, that are needed to uh, sort of do process that food and, and, and metabolically uh, utilize that, that energy is not going to be optimized. So I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be able to pull glucose out of the blood very well. I'm not going to get it put into cells very well. My metabolization is not going to be optimized. The ability for the liver to do its job uh, and detoxify and gallbladder to, to release bile acids, everything about the digestive process is not going to be good. It's not going to be optimized. So those foods are not going to get broken down. They're going to create a, an environment in the stomach, in the small intestine, and the large intestine that's going to be more toward putrefaction as opposed to digestion, more towards um, you know things just kind of stagnating, right? The, in fact, just the migrating motor complex that moves through food through the digestive tract is not going to be optimized. So now we're going to have food sitting in this tube, not really doing as much as it could and it's going to start becoming this putrefication factory right it's it's not going to end up well that creates an overgrowth of of certain bacteria that are not optimal for health it's going to create more lipopolysaccharide release it's going to create leaky gut it's going to create more inflammatory markers in the digestive tract and then outside of the digestive tract in the whole system we're going to get elevated markers throughout the body so it's just going to lead to this degradation of the actual gi system as a whole everything's going to get more inflamed and again, it's this downward spiral uh, of function, right? So once we start getting all of this stuff, this is what can lead to things like SIBO. This is what can lead to things like, you know, any inflammatory bowel disease. All these things that we don't want are going to happen, right? So, um, and again, at the at night, what we what we want, if we don't have a belly and a gut full of food to process, because that, that's a big. You don't realize how much energy is required to yeah. process food, right? So imagine you only have so much resource and you're dedicating 40% of it to digesting a huge meal. And instead the body's what it really wants to do is start cleaning up and preparing for the next mm. day. It wants to start turning over cells and, 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 and processing certain hormones, right? Through the liver and, and detoxing the body naturally, right? So there's, there's a process that the body's wanting to get into. And we're saying, no, 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 don't do that here. I got this big bowl of ice cream and some pizza for you. Like, handle that, right? So not only is it a tough food in general, but it wants to do a different task. Yeah. So we're preventing it from doing the cleanup tasks and we're giving it another job to do. So now not only is that other job adding to the, the pile, we're actually not even able to clear the, the, the pile that's built up. So it's, it's like saying, don't clean up your house. Let's just keep adding more trash. And eventually it's just going to result in, in 
some kind of symptom, some kind of diagnosis, some kind of issue. And it can be anything. It can it can end up being joint pains. It can end up being brain fog. It, it, you just don't know what it's going to end up just being. driving up all the inflammatory pathways. Everything. And, and, and I think this is, I wanted to finish on that because I think this is really key because, you know, a lot of, I, I'm a huge advocate of intermittent fasting. And a lot of people that follow me or are listening to this are practicing a level of intermittent fasting. And a lot of people kind of fall into this idea of like, yeah, I'm just going to fast all day and I'll eat a huge meal at night. Right. But like what Jason is saying here, you could really be throwing off your circadian rhythm. That's not the ideal time. I mean, obviously, you know, everybody's schedule is a little bit different, but based on our circadian rhythm, it's better to have your compressed eating window, getting the benefits of intermittent fasting, but consuming those meals while the sun's in the sky. Yeah. So you're hitting on something really, really interesting. And I think the reason it was that, that we've fallen into this trap of skipping breakfast, eating kind of like a moderate, mediocre lunch, maybe kind of a nice salad with some other things there and some protein. And then we have this like nice big meal or a lot of people are just doing one meal a day. And, and it's not that one meal a day is bad. It's just, you're right. It's the window at which we're throwing mm -hmm. it into. Now, why are we doing that? It's because of our culture. Right. Most yeah. of us work during the day and then we we want to have a meal. We want to share a meal with our family. Yeah. And that's the time when right. we eat our big meal. So culturally it's appropriate, but biologically it's actually inappropriate. It's more right. It, it, it's really the optimal window for those those heavy digestible meals is probably about from 11 a.m. to 2 or 3 p.m. Yeah. That's the window that you have good blood sugar control, you've got good insulin regulation, you've got good digestive capacity. And digestive capacity is the number one factor for, uh, I would say, processing a meal effectively. Mm. In other words, if we're eating too often and eating too much, we don't have the digestive juice. We don't have the hydrochloric acid. We don't have the digestive enzymes. We don't have the, the ability for the liver to do its job. We lose the capacity to digest food. In Ayurveda, they call this, uh, well, we won't get to go into that. That's, that's a whole nother <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, but, but the idea is that when we are hungry, that's when, and, and is, this is something that I think we, we really want to get in touch with again. What is hunger? What is mm. real hunger? And this, these little pangs that we get can often be resolved by drinking a, a 16 ounces of water, yeah. right? They can be resolved by going for a walk. They can be resolved a number of different ways as opposed to just having another snack or another meal. And so it is, if someone's looking to change their life and their relationship with food, this is a relationship I think it's worth exploring is hunger. Get into hunger, feel that hunger. And when you go into that meal, you should be ravenous and hungry. And that's so good. Every, every bite you take, every food that you eat will taste better, right? Your body will be able to process it better, right? So, so I, I totally agree that if you're one that has the capacity and the ability based on your lifestyle to eat um, either maybe, maybe it's a, a later breakfast and maybe it's a large later lunch, right? So you can, yeah. this idea of breakfast, lunch, dinner can be totally thrown out, right? This is a cultural yeah. thing. It is not set in stone based yeah, on totally. biology, right? Totally. So and and I do, a, I do one meal on Wednesdays and, um, I eat a big lunch on Wednesdays, usually somewhere between one and two o'clock. And I sit with, I, in fact, I usually make dinner for my family and I sit there with them. And honestly, I'm really not hungry. And I, I, I've eaten a good amount of protein, you know, satiating foods and sleep, prioritizing sleep really helps with that, like you were talking about. And then you kind of get into this process where you're very metabolically flexible. And so my body almost craves that, you know, I do it roughly about a 24 hour fast once a week. When I get to that point, it's almost like my body knows the signal. It's like, okay, right. 
I'm, I'm not even going to be hungry. The first few times I did it, I was, I was hungry. At, I felt kind of those feelings because I had trained my body to say, hey, this is the time of day where we eat. And now my body kind of knows every periodically we don't eat dinner. That's right. And this is where I'm going to put all my energy now into healing and repair. And I'm actually going to take away hunger and cravings because I know how beneficial this is. The, uh, tapping into the innate intelligence. And of course, I'm programming it right by getting the proper amount of light exposure, getting the proper amount of sleep. And then the the, the lunch that I eat is very blood sugar stabilizing. It's not, yep. you know, I, I, there's no processed foods in there. It's higher in protein and fiber and polyphenols and healthy fats. And so um, that helps train my body to where fasting through dinner and I'm watching all my kids eat, I'm, you know, chopping up food for them and whatnot and, uh, and my wife and, and yet I'm able to enjoy the company without actually needing to eat. And, and that's the thing you hit on something really important there, which is this process of kind of going through it. Right. So I've, you work with a lot of people that have, um, you know, blood sugar control issues, right. They might be hypoglycemic, right. That's another one where for a hypoglycemic, I wouldn't say just start intermittent fasting. That's going right. to be a disaster, right. There's a process to, to evolve and to, mm -hmm. to become more adapted. Right. And so again, this is where the invitation is to explore that sort of, um, that, that, that hunger edge for you. Right. Like, where is that? Right. And you might get to this point where you're like, geez, I'm really hungry. Like, but there's, there's generally a point that you feel like you need to eat and it's actually not as bad. You, you just, you haven't mm -hmm. been to that edge yet in a while. And so once you get to that edge, then you can kind of, you can play with that for a little bit and then you can push beyond it. Right. And so it may look like if you're used to eating three, four, maybe even five sort of meal snacks a day, you start cutting back some of those and your body's going to send those signals like, Hey, it's snack time. Remember, like we were supposed to have snack time. And then you push through that and, and then you get to, to lunch and then you're, you're a little bit more hungry than usual. Well, that's going to, that's going to modify and adapt as you become more metabolically flexible. Right. So this is what I think is really important. Yes. There's differences in constant institution, right? There's certain people that actually do better with fasting for longer periods and certain yeah. people that, that don't do as well. I'm kind of in the middle I've discovered. And there's certain, certain people that don't really do great with long periods of fast. They can do it, mm -hmm. but it's just not optimal for them. So maybe it's like a 12 or 14 hour window consistently. That's really good. But these like these windows of time are really important where the body has the capacity to do other things and di digest food, right? And maybe figure it takes two to three hours to fully digest a meal. If you're doing it right. That means if you're chewing your food thoroughly and all this stuff. I mean, it's sometimes longer that. depending on the size totally. of the Four, and you can track this hours. stuff, right? Yeah. You can track this with blood sugar uh, yeah. uh, monitors and, and and other ways as well. Heart rate variability. There's all kinds of things that you can actually you know, check this stuff and see how food's affecting you. But as your body gets better at that, um, you're going to have more adaptability, more flexibility, and you can find your window. But that that time where the body is not dealing with food, the brain is sharper. Right? You have you again once it's adapted, you have more energy. Your mood is more stable. You're able to detox. Like that is the key to longevity: is giving your body these windows. But it's 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 critical that you're doing the other things right as well. Yeah. You got to get the circadian rhythm right and the sleep right. Or what we're talking about here is going to seem impossible. When I was sleep deprived with my little one, if I was trying to do this stuff, yeah, I could do it. But actually, I might be really moody, right? Yeah. Or I might be. Uh, it just unable to to effectively push through and get the things done that I needed to get done, right? Like you're you may lose, and you may not really get the health benefits of it. That's it's right. Kind of like exercise. Exercise right. is most people. If you say, "Hey, is exercise healthy?" They're going to say, "Oh yeah, of course it's healthy." Right. But if you look at it under a microscope, I mean, it's extremely catabolic and damaging to the tissues of our body. 
it's really the recovery process. That's really where we heal. And so it's kind of like we want to hit the right window where we're challenging our body, you know, this kind of horm- getting this hormetic stress benefit, but not overtraining. So, you know, when you add your newborn, your training level, you, you know, if you went, if you, I know, I know I experienced this, the intensity level of my exercise when we're not in a newborn stage versus, you know, we've gone through with our twins and then two other, two, uh, my two daughters, three newborn stages. And, um, my intensity, the intensity level of my exercise, if I tried to do the same intensity level and the same frequency of exercise during that newborn stage when my sleep wasn't good, it's actually worse for my body to yeah. some degree than not exercising at all. Yep, exactly. And this is where um, maybe it's a good point to end on, which is that like where I think most of us in the modern world can start to uh, explore more are at the extremes. In other mm-hmm. words, push yourself in the extreme and rest in the extreme, yeah. right? So like, and most of us are are eating too much and too uh, too frequently. So what's the other extreme? Well, we need a little more time off of food. So when I, so occasionally I'll do a, let's say a three or five day, the juice, I call it juice feasting. In other words, I'm mm-hmm. drinking tons of juice. I'm getting actually some calories. I'm not like, mm-hmm. it's not a fast per se, but there's no physical material that I'm eating, but that's yeah. still, um, it's, it's, it's a catabolic, it's a hormetic process that I got to be gentle on my body. Now, could mm-hmm. I go do exercise and, you know, like, yeah, we can do that. Like we can do 10 days of fasting and still perform exercises. No question. But the real benefits I think are when we, when we do something like that, maybe it's maybe a 24 hour fast is extreme for you. Take it easy that day. You know, don't push yeah. yourself, you know, rest, meditate, pray, relax, lay down, you know, go outside, go for a light walk, right? Like these are the things that I think I, I invite people to explore more. And this is, if you want to look at what people in the longevity regions of the world, how they lived, it was at the extremes. They got extreme heat, exposed to extreme heat because they didn't have central heating or central cooling. They got exposed to extreme cold because they didn't get, they didn't have central heating, they had fires, right? They, they lived directly by the circadian rhythm. They didn't have lighting for most of their lives. They didn't have electricity for most of their lives. Um, and, and they, they went long periods of time, often to be honest, it, it may be the more severe damaging effect. They, they didn't have food, uh, uh, many times for, for months or years, they went without wow. food because of certain government rationing and wars and mm-hmm. things that were going on. So we, they went through extremes. Now I'm not saying we should do that, but we can invite a little bit more of this extreme nature of cold therapy and hot therapy, right. In, in saunas of, of getting uh, good periods of fasting and good periods of total rest and pushing our bodies a little bit more. When was the last time you sprinted, right? When was the last time you really, really used your body to its full capacity, right? Start pushing some of these things wherever you're at, you know, it looks different, but um, that's where we're going to start to really gain the benefits because the extreme side is tends to be where the body's starting to push and adapt and create more resilience and more adaptations that are positive, that are, that are, that are sort of this anti-fragile aspect of who we are, right? And then the rest side is where we recover, right? Without that severe, significant rest, um, and it can, again, the, 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 the insides, your digestive tract recovers when there's no food. Your microbiome diversity improves and blossoms when there's no food, right? Detoxification and, and autophagy and mitophagy and all the recycling of proteins and, and all the, the, the getting rid of the waste happens when there's no barrier, when there's nothing else for that system to do except for start to clean up, right? 
go into the extreme sleep, so to speak, like get really good at sleep, right? And 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 the actual uh, sleep architecture, right? Like these are really important aspects. And so, um, again, what I see in our modern world is that we live in this 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 constantly controlled 72 degrees fahrenheit environment all year round it's the same lighting all year round right we don't get dipping into the we're not dipping into the extremes as much right we're constantly feeding we don't go through fat, feast and famine on a on a daily level or a seasonal level right everything's just kind of the same and so that is creating a bit of a weakness in our constitution and so there's and again this can you can even apply this to our immune system we need to get sick in other words now we mm. say i wouldn't even say sick we need to be challenged by organisms mm. in our environment right and you can even make this 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 case for things like radiation right in fact we know that from the sun but yeah. even some of this other radiation that we might get from let's say fukushima type of things there is there's actually research showing that small amounts of this sort of radiation uh small amounts of chemicals can be beneficial yeah. because they're exerting this hormetic effect they're creating yeah. an adaptive capacity now again some chemicals that even the micro level are toxic and even more toxic so I don't want to open that can of worms, but that the concept is such that that we need to expose ourselves to the environment. We are stronger than we really realize. We are more adaptable. And when we get the core foundations right, like getting good sleep, like having a good social environment, like moving on a regular basis, like eating good high quality foods at the right time and digesting our food, now we can encounter our environment. We can resist it. We can be strengthened by it as opposed to taking down by it, right? So it's this sort of like resilience and fortitude that we're building. And this is kind of the chiropractic model really yeah. um, i wasn't trained as a chiropractor but everything i know about chiropractors like this is kind of what we're talking about is building this resilience through through kind of this engagement with our environment as opposed to building a bubble around us right like that's not the way we do this great like you said we'll, we'll finish there that was that was awesome guys check out beyondlongevitybook.com to get jason's book jason again thanks for your time we could have gone you know four or five hours we could spend a whole I day i love talking this. to you yeah <laughs> i know thanks for having me on good to talk yeah to you, you got it absolutely all right everybody be blessed well that's all for this show and i want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today and if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.